we are, uh, we're in second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, and uh, rolling into, uh, as Joe mentioned in the E New Hope, a, a, a three-week series on uh, this passage, chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Uh, I'm really excited that the third week of this is going to feature uh, our friend Nicole Martin. Uh, Nicole uh, is the past, executive pastor of a large church down in North Carolina. Uh, Mary and I got to know her and her husband on the Israel trip we took back in February. Um, my guess is after she comes, you won't want to let her go back, uh, but I'm thrilled that she'll be here in a few weeks. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and we say in the creed whenever we take communion, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Next week, I want to talk about the content of that belief, but this week what I want to talk about is what it means for us to say that we believe. Paul says in chapter 2, starting in verse 6, that we, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, though he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Raise your hands. Who, who here feels like you have the mind of Christ right now? Shannon sort of, sort of does. You can raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not asking whether you do. I'm asking whether you feel like you do. The, the reality is some of this stuff can be hard to believe. Let me ratchet it up another notch. Take out the prayer books that you have in, in your uh, pews. That's the red thing with the with a cross on the cover. And flip all the way back to page eight hundred and sixty-four. One of the handy things about the prayer book is that it contains some historical documents, statements of faith that have been important in the history of, of the church. And here on page eight hundred and sixty-four we have the Athanasian Creed. 
one of the most important uh, of the early creeds, usually not one that you recite. You can tell it's not one you recite because they printed it in letters so small uh, that once you're past the age of like 25, you basically it's hopeless for you to be able to do anything with this. But, but that, this creed starts off like this. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is, see this, I've got bigger print, this one's a bigger print. Whoever will be sa- whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled. Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. You've got to believe this if you want to be saved, Athanasius said. He concludes this. So, as in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity and trinity and the trinity and unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must think thus of the trinity. Must. I'll ratchet it up another notch. Flip in your Bibles ahead to James. Go past Paul's letters, past Hebrews. We get to James James says, consider it pure joy at the beginning of his book. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I'm looking at some people who do, just, just kidding. <laughs> if any of you lacks wisdom, He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. tough to hear, isn't it? You have to believe and not doubt. And if you doubt at all, then you can forget about getting anything. I don't think the situation is as desperate as all that. Let me try to unpack this in a bit, a bit in a way that, that may make some sense for us. We, we often think of belief and doubt as being in opposition to one another, right? I mean, even in the passage in James, you better believe and not doubt. The reality is that you can't do either of these by an exercise of the will. You can't. You can't decide, I am going to doubt this. Either you do or you don't, and you do to a greater degree or a lesser degree, but, but experiencing doubt and experiencing belief, these are, are phenomena. We're describing something that's happening, not saying something ought to happen. We're describing something that is happening right now. I am experiencing belief that at some point it's going to get warmer. I'm experiencing doubt that next May it will be this cold. 
at the end of May. These are not important things really to believe in or doubt, but, but this, is, this is simply a, a, an accurate statement of what's going on inside my head, right? What we do with these, though, is where the rub lies. What we do with doubt and with belief can go in a couple different directions. So, if we believe something with great certainty, with great vigor, and if we push on that as hard as we can, quite often what that leads to is arrogance. Do you know anybody, you don't have to point fingers, do you know anybody who believes something so strongly that they have absolute contempt for people who don't share that point of view? M Marlene, yeah, I, I, you can raise your hand. You don't have to point at anybody. But if you want to raise your hand, you can. I, I basically, I mean, this, this is, I think, the experience many of us have. If you don't encounter those people, listen to talk radio for about 15 seconds, and you will experience this right away. On both sides, left, right, center, libertarian, communist, doesn't matter, everybody, there are people who are so set and so certain of what they believe that, that they, they cannot respect people who disagree. In the same way, it's possible to doubt so strongly, to be so sure that you don't believe something, that it leads to nihilism, which really is the arrogant belief that you can't believe anything, except that you can't believe anything, right? A, a nihilist is going to say, well, I just have such a radical attitude of doubt toward everything, I, I can't believe anything. That's the dark side of what we do with doubt and belief. The bright side, though, of doubt is that it can lead to humility. Our experience of doubt can lead us to take an attitude toward things that can let us cultivate an attitude of humility, of recognizing that there is a God and we're not Him. So the way in which we know things has to be characterized by an understanding of our human finitude. But at the same time, we can also develop belief into confidence. You can hold something to be true with confidence without being arrogant about it, can't you? I mean, do you know people who have strong beliefs? They're not a jerk about it, but, but you know that they hold those strongly right? And you know that there are people who, who hold ideas and they're humble about them. They realize that there are parts of them that can be hard to embrace and hard to understand, but, but they're not going to then take that to say, well, forget it, you can't really believe anything. I think in a lot of ways our experiences of doubt and belief together, if we, if we respond well to them, can mean that we develop both humility and confidence, and that we hold those in tension with one another, that if we get too confident, we recognize it's important for us to be humble. But if we get too humble, which 
is usually not a problem. But if we do have, get too humble, we can remind ourselves, no, there, there are some things that we really can be confident about. And incidentally, that word confidence comes from the Latin with faith, confides. One of the fun things about English is it's the bastard child of Latin and, uh, and the Germanic languages. So we have, in many cases, two different words that will translate the same thing in Greek. So, for example, you have uh, pistis, which is faith. Pistis is the Greek word uh, for faith. Well, it's also the Greek word for belief, right? But for us, um, our language has developed such that we have different kind of ranges of meaning for the words faith and belief, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, where this gets difficult is when we talk about faith and belief as things we experience or as things that we do. This may be helpful. Break out Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, we get this story of the healing of a boy with an evil spirit. When they came to the other disciples. This is right, uh, right after the transfiguration. Jesus with Peter, James, and John got to the, where the other disciples were. They saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with the disciples. And as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. So what are you arguing about, he asked. The man in the crowd answered, well, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. Oh, faithless generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. If you can? Everything's possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked that unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, well, why, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, well, this kind can only come out by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anybody to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him. And after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. In fact, they were afraid to ask him about it. 
there's so much in this story that is so comforting and helpful to me. One is how clueless the disciples were. I mean, they had been hanging around with him all the time. At this point, it says Jesus basically took them away for an intensive seminar. He didn't let anybody else know where they were. They went on retreat, and he wanted to make sure that he got some time to teach them. But they did not understand what he meant. So if the guys who hung out with him all the time did not always understand him, I feel a little better about the times that I have difficulty understanding him. But I'm also comforted by Jesus' response to this man. You almost can imagine Jesus with saying this with mock incredulity. If you can? What do you mean, if you can? I'm Jesus. Of course I can. Don't say, if you can. Now, there is the question of if you will. And the fact is, Jesus was able to heal every diseased person, every, uh, to exercise every demon-possessed person. He could have brought back every dead person to life in every cemetery he walked past. He didn't do that. He left a whole lot of people in the towns that he visited still sick and blind and dead. But can he? Of course he can. If he can, said Jesus, everything's possible for him who believes. And immediately the father's response was, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Ah, except I kind of don't. Right? Help thou my unbelief. Meaning I believe, but I doubt. I'm, I'm experiencing this tension right now. Jesus, I'm believing that you can, uh, but I also kind of doubt that you can. I don't, what am I going to do with this? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to ask Jesus for help. A person who's arrogant is not able to do that, by the way. If you're so confident you've got everything figured out, you're not going to ask Jesus for help because you don't need anybody's help. You've got this sorted. If you're a nihilist, you're not going to ask Jesus for help because uh, nobody can help. But a humble person can say, man, I'm, I'm trying to believe. Help me out. And a confidence, confident person can do that because they know the one that, that they're asking. One of my favorite illustrations is this thing here called a Hoberman sphere. Anybody seen one of these? So I'll just let all of you with kids know this lives in my office. They can come play with it, but not today because I have to use this for the 11 o'clock too. The downside is it glows in the dark. You just can't tell now. That's pretty cool. But when you look at this, it doesn't seem very appealing, does it? It's kind of prickly, seems kind of closed in. In a lot of ways, that's what Christian doctrine can be like sometimes. This idea that the Holy Spirit is fully God, that we're to worship Him. The idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, without division or separation, confusion or change. The idea that the God exists eternally in three persons, yet with one essence that we're to be worshipped, we're to worship Him Trinity and unity and unity and trinity. 
well, it gets kind of confusing and doesn't seem like something that's real easy to wrap your head around, does it? Doesn't seem very appealing. But the nature of these doctrines, the truth of them, is that as we meditate on them, as we explore them, as we allow them to take shape, what we see is we don't have to wrap our minds around them at all. They are quite capable of wrapping themselves around our minds. What we see is that they encompass everything that needs to be encompassed by them. We see them in their radiance and their beauty. But that process of going from this to this, of going from something that is tightly closed, impossible to penetrate, spiky, dangerous looking, is that this opening is a process. The good news is that this opening is not a process that we have to accomplish at all. See, when Jesus says to the man, if you can, everything's possible for him who believes, it's really not saying it's possible for the one who believes, it's possible for me to do through and in and for the one who believes. It's not our job to make this out of this. It's our job to have the humble confidence that God can make this out of this. It's our job to place ourselves in a posture of respect and deference and humble access so that God can expand our minds and our hearts. So that God can develop in us this belief. Even as we experience doubt, God is the one who can enable us to experience that belief. Because the fact is, this belief that we're called to, this belief James says we have to have is not something that comes about by our own exertion. And it's also, and this is a place where that word faith may be helpful, having faith in something, trusting, is another word that helps to translate that. Having faith, which is a literal translation of confidence, is a really hard thing to do when you're talking about having faith in an idea or even in a thing, in a pattern of phenomena like the weather. But when you're talking about having faith in a person, that's a whole different matter. When you're talking about trusting a person, well, if that person happens to be the Lord of the universe, existing eternally in three persons, if that person has demonstrated that he's worthy of your confidence, 
Christ sacrificially dying on your behalf, then it may be that we can hear Paul say that there's a message of wisdom among the mature that he speaks. It's not, a, not the wisdom of this age. It's not a wisdom of the rulers of this age. They're coming to nothing. No, this, this is God's secret wisdom, a wisdom hidden that God destined for our glory before time began. No, no eye has seen or ear has heard or mind has conceived what God's prepared for those who love him, but, but God has revealed this to us by his Spirit. Next week we'll talk more about who the Spirit is and how we know the Spirit and what the Spirit does and how He does these things. But the thing that I want you to come away with today is that the Spirit is real. Our confidence is not in a thing or in a concept. Our confidence is in a person who loves us, who has demonstrated that he is worthy of that kind of belief and that kind of trust. And it is going to seem like foolishness if you're just trying to score this on human standards. we may, as we grow in unity with God, as we're transformed into his likeness, we may experience, we may feel, we may come to have some degree of confidence, humbly, that as Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we do not always deal well with the doubt that we experience. We confess that too often we allow it to drive us to despair. That it can harden us. Make us unwilling to trust because we don't want to get hurt want to get disappointed again. And we confess that we don't always handle our experiences of belief and trust all that well either. It can make us arrogant and hateful. We pray that by the gracious working of your Holy Spirit, you would make us people who turn our experiences of doubt into the development of humility. Turn our experiences of belief into the development of confidence. That we would be people who always hold our confidence and our humility in tension with one another. Knowing both that we are human and fallen, that we're broken, that we misunderstand, that our flesh wars against the things of God, but that at the same time we do have the mind of Christ, that the Spirit 
within us is powerfully at work. We pray that as we live into this reality, that we would know more deeply the beauty of who you are as you've revealed yourself to be. Three in one and one in three. May we ever be your faithful worshipers in spirit and in truth. Amen.